So Harrison, about a week ago, mm -hmm. I uh, decided to take a, a break from my uh, Destiny 2 video game. Right. Because I was having too much fun with it and staying up too late. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I need to take a break from this. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we take a few weeks break because after a few weeks, um, sometime in January, February, so now in February, the expansion's going to come out. So I'm kind of like fasting before I feast again. Gotcha. So I'm very Catholic that way, right? Right. But last Sunday, I, you know, had done my holy hour. I had celebrated two masses you know, reverently. I saw the fruits of the spirit being born in the people who came to mass. I saw the angels singing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had read a little bit, some spiritual reading. You were, you were lifted up to the third heaven. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I don't want to brag. It was more like the second and a half heaven, you know. Uh, let's be completely honest here. And the day was over. Mm -hmm. Nothing else to do. Nothing else to prepare for. Had checked my emails. Five o'clock. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what do I do? And so I opened up my computer. And I checked on Steam. And just like flipped through some of the games that I might be interested in. And then about six hours later... I realize I have to also fast from this new game that I have. <laughs> what about it's, just games in general? Well, you know, um, I, I'm not perfect. Like I mentioned, I've only been transported to the second and a half heaven. So, you know, learning experience. Uh, like it was, it was, you know, fine, but just not something I want to do all the time. Yeah. Uh, and it's basically civilization, mm -hmm. but in space. What's it called? It's called, it's called Stellaris. Hmm. And uh, so, but the neat thing about it, so you basically can expand uh, your own empire into the galaxy. There's all Ooh. kinds of different factions and all this stuff. But the thing is, you can create your own faction. So let's say that Father Anthony wants to create a religious uh, monarchy mm -hmm. called the Spanish Inquisition. Mm -hmm. And with like a bunch of battleships to take over and colonize other planets and bring them true doctrine. I can do that in space and it's so fun <laughs> i was gonna say I, I don't play video games a lot but like everything you're describing like i i have to go to there <laughs> oh yeah so there's like you know other factions that are on your level but there's also like these ancient factions that are overwhelmingly powerful and you have to research different technologies help them out there's like marauding uh bandits uh there's politics you can go to straight up diplomacy routes and this is single player and multiplayer uh, yes, uh, I think it'd be difficult to play multiplayer because like like Civ, it's a long game, but you could do multiplayer. And it's not turn-based, it's time-based. So you can pause the game, make some decisions, you can fast forward. And it's because games like that with a big map, I get so sucked into them uh, that all of a sudden it's five hours later. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure if this is an advertisement or a warning for this game. I know, you're kind of making me like, hmm. Yeah, hmm. like... Do, but do I need new distractions? No. I sell new planet. I can name it whatever I want. I can name it Rome, the New Jerusalem. Uh, I can name it Daughter Malta. Zion. I can name it Daughter Zion. Right? There's actually you can actually create worlds and set the, set them aside as holy worlds, um, or you can go a straight up scientific route. And I'm um, I'm basically doing uh, space crusades uh, in some of my free time now. Space crusades. This reminds me of two things. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, they, that getting lost. It's part of the reason I don't play video games much because that can easily happen to me. Mm -hmm. But I also, my, my problem is I often get bored. But games like this, I would not get bored with because it would it would just be, it would be a lot more engaging. But, like, 
anyways um but i remember when i was in university i think it was in university i remember playing like i think i, I think i was uh downloading it was either it was world of warcraft or lord of the rings online back mm-hmm. in the day the big mmorpg it's like oh yeah. i'll play the free download and i'm like and it was like 12 hours later and you're like oh i can't play this game <laughs> <laughs> I cannot exactly. play this game. This will destroy my life. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Have you, have, you, have you seen that South Park about uh, about World of Warcraft? I watched it while I was uh, how sick can, with COVID. As how, a matter of fact, how can you kill that which has no life? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So there, yeah, it's. It, but it also reminds me back in like high school or early university days, there was a great Star Wars game. It was like the best Star, one of the best Star Wars games I ever played. It was, and I forget what it was called. I think it was like Star Wars Empires or something like that, where mm-hmm. you it, it had like it was multi tiered. So you, it was like galact about galactic domination or resisting the the galactic empire, but yeah. then it so that's on your more kind of um, macro levels, larger. Right? I always get them mixed up. Yeah, my, macro yeah. level, but then it it also zooms into the micro level where you can where you set up armies and wars and you're playing and you're setting up bases and mining for stuff. I was yep. like, it was it was so good. Yeah, it's like the Total War games. It's like that. Yeah. So, you know, five, hour, five hours of video games, not healthy for you. One hour of Clerically Speaking, good for body and soul. Welcome to Thusly Mentioned, Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Anthony. I'm Father Harrison. Um, just a couple of small things, really. I'll keep it short. Um, but uh, at the time of recording, it's beforehand. But the time it comes out, it'll be afterhand. It's, my, it's the time of my ordination anniversary. Ooh, yeah, because yes, you got ordained in, in the in the tunnel months. Yes, February seventh yeah. is a very weird time to become or to be ordained a priest. It uh, is. It is not normal. The only no. reason I chose that date it was the earliest one available from the bishop. Yeah, uh, I'm like, <laughs> just get those hands on my head. Uh, so yeah, that'll be like that'll be seven years. Holy smokes! Uh, now, You're like af- becoming a regular priest after seven years, you get a sabbatical, right? That's what the Old Testament prescribes. Oh. <laughs> It's <laughs> a Taking a break. <laughs> Father Harrison, we're a serious podcast. We talk about serious things. Okay, Can you please sorry. focus up. Sorry, yeah. But no, it's 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 good. It's always for me, really and truly. And it's it's the hard thing because you want to, you really do want to celebrate it as a priest. But you also yeah. don't want to be like, hey, everyone, celebrate me. You know, it's like. You know what I mean? Like, like it's like the it's like the rest mm-hmm. of the development uh, where Job is doing the Christmas party. He's like, everybody dance now, everybody dance now. Like, everyone <laughs> celebrate my, my ordination. Everyone celebrate my ordination with me. No, but yeah. it's just it's hard because it's like for me, really, ordination anniversary greater than birthday. Yeah, yeah, it really, honestly, truly, and unlike married couples who can easily, you know, your 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 parishes, your your spouse, in a sense, so. It's hard. It's hard. Like, hey, yeah, this is a thing. But, um, but, 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 uh, what I'm looking forward to is, is, uh, some friends said, hey, we should do something on Monday night for your anniversary. So you want to come down and cool. hang out at our house? So, you know, uh, my buddy Dave and his wife Rebecca. I'm godfather to all three of their children. Okay, um, yeah. And then some other, fr- a few other friends. Nothing big because of COVID, but just you know, a small gathering of ten or twelve of us at their house that night. And it, it's seven. It's not a big number or anything. Like ten will be the yeah. big one. I think that'll be the first big anniversary. Yeah. Uh, as long, God willing, we make it this long, you know, of course. <laughs> but, amen, uh, amen. <laughs> um, but yeah. And then just um, on Sunday, 
when we as the last episode I talked about our vespers afterwards I went to some parishioners houses for dinner parishioners house for dinner which was always a great time they've got six kids and uh and you know it's always a great reminder to me as a priest of how much we need to support families because it's like you're like man how do they do this every day <laughs> yeah <laughs> right how do you do it but it was just it was a great time and I really enjoyed uh, my time I always enjoy going to to Chris and um Chris and Rianne's house and, and seeing their kids. I'm I'm godfather to their youngest daughter, Florence. And she's finally slowly, she's only nine or 10 months old, but she's finally slowly like letting me hold her. And Aww. it's like, she's getting used to me. I'm like, yes. That's cool. Which was really great. So that's good yeah. stuff. But yeah, so that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Just a little, just a... wait, sorry, Harrison. Yes. Who is it? It's a theological emergency. <laughs> Thank you for calling Clerically Speaking. If this is truly a theological emergency, please dial 1 at any time. Hi, I flushed my goldfish down the toilet, and I wanted to know, is that a sin? Theological Emergency. We'll take your call at 412-912-7995. So have you slept since you played that video game? <laughs> I haven't slept. It has been uh, a busy, busy time, and I am running on... This is my sixth shot of espresso yeah. today? I'm feeling great, Father Harrison. Good, good. I will crash right after we are done recording. But for now, we have an emergency to answer. Hello, Fathers. This is Nick calling from Texas. Question for you. We've heard in the last few years that the Vatican has had trouble getting priests to accept appointment as bishops. Uh, and I'm wondering from a couple of priests who I wouldn't mind seeing be made bishops, why do priests hesitate to accept this? Why, if you tell your pastor, I think you make a great bishop someday, do they look like you've just insulted them somehow? Why do they get that look of fear on their face? Help us understand. Uh, and maybe also, why? Uh, what could the church do to help encourage priests to do that? Thanks. Okay. So, uh, so Nick, if that is your real name, uh, I will tell you when the nuncio calls me uh, <laughs> as soon as I on my thirty fifth birthday, because that's as young as you can be to uh, normally to be a bishop. I will answer the phone, and he will have some sort of marvelous accent because he won't be from the United States; he'll be from some place in Europe. And uh, when he asks me that, the, it tells me the Holy Father has asked me to be a bishop. The first thing I will say is, it's about damn time. <laughs> and I'll hang up the phone. And then I will run over to all my classmates who are way smarter than me, way who already, than who me. already have their purple socks. Because <laughs> they went to Rome. <laughs> they already have their fancy hats hiding in the closet in a special cedar closet so moths don't eat them. I'll just steal them. I'll take them. I'll run into our archives. I'll, I'll go to my current ordinary, ordinary, whoever he is, and be like, I'm just going to take his miter. It's mine now. <laughs> I'm going to take my, my crozier and I'm just going to start hitting people in the streets with it. It's like, I have the power now. What are you going to do? about it um but not every priest is like that nick uh most priests when they think about becoming a bishop they get terrified because uh, you know um nick if that is your real name you mentioned that you've heard you know through grapevine that not a lot of priests are being asked to be called 
to be a bishop actually are saying yes to that. Now, I don't know how you got that information because that's supposed to be a secret, but somehow you have connections. Maybe you listen to the Pillar podcast or something like that. Nick, if that is your real name, when's the last time you heard a, a good story of a bishop in the news? Or when's the last time you heard someone just say, I love my bishop. I have no complaints about my bishop. I think the reason why guys hesitate to uh, uh, become a bishop is because, uh, you know, when, when we're in seminary, I think most guys want to be a pastor at a parish or work at a parish or work at a hospital uh, to be on the ground, connected with the people of God, to serve in that way. That's our ideal. And being a bishop is a really, I mean, it's an impossible job in a very particularly difficult time in the church. So why would you give up your dream job to have more responsibilities? uh, And like, why would you want to do that? Like on a human level, you can see how that makes perfect sense. I do think, um, and I'm joking about (laughs) all the bishop stuff, um, or am I? Uh, But... I think priests in general could do a better job at accepting compliments. Uh, when someone says, hey, you make a great bishop, they're saying that, like, I think you are capable of doing this thing, and I would like for you to do this thing for me. So, like, it's basically saying, like, I, I wish you were the father of a diocese. And that's kind of beautiful. But at the same time, you can see how it's awkward, because you don't want to be that guy who sounds a lot like Father Anthony never the idea of bishop becoming a bishop comes up because that's not very humble so it's it's kind of tricky yeah you know uh so father harrison your thoughts when you were uh talking about going out with like the crows and everything i just the the image that popped in my mind was i don't know if you ever seen the monty python skit of the bishop where he's running around trying to stop like a caprice is trying to baptize a baby and it turns out to actually be a bomb and he goes oh <laughs> i was too late <laughs> and sorry <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't seen. I'm going to YouTube that right yes. after this. Uh, so, <laughs> um, no, I, I, actually, I think Nick is his real name because I'm, I'm pretty sure I know which Nick this is. Okay, but um, uh, it's impossible to know because we don't know his real name. <laughs> uh, no, I, it's he's he's right. Um, and as you spend more time in the diocese as a priest, you work. You, you, you're slowly initiated more and more into the diocesan life of the church mm-hmm. and you see the ins and outs of what a bishop has to put up with and you're like who in their right mind would actually want this yeah this is a terrible job this is a terrible job that, I, yes there is careerism in the church because sometimes it can still wield a lot of power financial sure, gain and absolutely. stuff like this because everything is in a bishop's name and I find more and more in North America I think Nick is right it just things you hear through the grapevine more and more guys are saying no like there are some priests i know who have not been made bishops because i'm almost certain they just said no and it's important that they have the freedom to say this yeah because you cannot impose a sacrament right sacraments have to be done in freedom um or at least reasonable freedom <laughs> um you know yeah. <laughs> you can't drag him into the church and force your hands on this and say you're a that bishop. being said there is some historical there precedent is. for this <laughs> but they they yes anyways um yeah and I think that's part. There's that. Um, they're entering into an increasingly impossible position because you're not only you're a bishop, but you are declining in vocations. Most of your job, from what I understand nowadays, is dealing with lawsuits, <laughs> and not just over you know what we would normally think, just all sorts of stuff, employment mm-hmm. stuff, everything. Like you just like you're understaffed. Your your time is not your own. You're not doing the things you love. It's often not. Employing your skill sets, 
um, and the things you have to manage are more done for the sake of, and rightfully so, like financial transparency, which is not, or, or, or you know, standards of the state around proper governance and organization stuff. Like these are all important things, but it's 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 so destroying sometimes. Um, and so I think that's a big reason they're saying no. I I think, and I I think part of the reason they downplay it is there is this tendency, at least I don't know, maybe father anthony and i's generation of i don't actually want that yeah um but there's also like this kind of like polite i have to i have to downplay this <laughs> you know right it's I, like uh that's just a polite thing to do yeah, it's because, like oh uh, no 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 if no. i say yes then everyone's gonna think i'm prideful or arrogant or right. whatever like oh he's seeking position in the church yeah um but I think we all know just it's it's a pretty burdensome task. But that being yeah. said, I do agree with you, Nick, about um, – I do agree with you with the fact that a lot of bishops are – or a lot of priests who are asked, there is that element. Like, I've, I've you can't help, but if you're a priest, with you can't help but think that this is a possibility one day because it is, right? For, for most priests, you could be chosen one day as a bishop. Yeah. There's just – yeah, and I think I think that idea crosses your mind once in a while, and you think, "What would I say if I was asked?" I like I, I really pondered that question once because when I went like for a young priest course, there was two bishops from Western Canada there, and they're explaining to us like the whole process. And they said, "We're telling you guys this because some of you will be made bishops one day, and you guys need to know how this works, and you need to know why it's important to say yes." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I had to think about that because I don't want all the no. stuff that comes with it and it's lonely oh my gosh because you can't be close you, there should be a closeness with your priest but you can't like confide in them not in the same way because right? you're their father now you're their father now right and then rightfully so like but yeah. man that's gotta be lonely that's mm-hmm. gotta be lonely um so and you need I think a great moral um you need a great not moral but like like a moral yeah moral certainty to be able to bear the weight of the office one phrase someone's used with me once about some bishops is that they have broad shoulders. Mm-hmm. You'd be able to take a lot, a lot of crap that's thrown your way. Um, but I've really thought about that. And I said like, you know, I don't want it at all ever. I know what I would love to do as a priest, but, and, and that's not it. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But who am I to say no to the church? Right. Is where I've always gone through with that. I would, have a sit down with the nuncio or whatever and say like are you guys sure are you sure have you listened to every episode sh- of my podcast yeah. did you guys get the names mixed up in the uh <laughs> on the files there or <laughs> you know you sure it wasn't this guy because he'd be great he'd be great <laughs> you know but yeah. you know I, uh, but i think like in the end i've always said to myself not that i'm seeking it at all like i really am yeah. not i do not want it <laughs> um how can i say no yeah, so what I do to support priests uh, in their potential calls, when I find a good one, I look them straight in the eye and say, if, if you ever get asked to be a bishop, you better say yes. And they start to protest, no, you say yes, or I'm going to beat you up. I've done this with my pastor. I think I've done this with Father Harrison before. Um, but seriously, because like, yeah, it's a tough job. Yeah. But if you're a good priest, I want you to say mm-hmm. yes. I because know. it's better that you, I mean, someone's got to do it. We need the good priest to be saying yes. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's a fun question. It's a good it's question. A and I think, I think it's important for people to understand like how this all works a bit. Yeah. 
It's tricky. Yeah. You know, uh, Harrison, uh, we're not going to do another theological emergency because we had promised something when we started this off. If we got a question that maybe would make for a longer topic, we would put it in presbyteral exhortations. And that's what we're going to do now in presbyteral exhortations. And now it is time for presbyteral Exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. It's my favorite part. Oh, it's oh, the best part. Oh, yes. Yes. Quite. Yes. Hey, Father Anthony and Father Harrison. This is Greg, the OSHA RN, calling with a theological question for you. When we go to Mass, especially the Novus Ordo Mass, everyone is facing each other especially during the liturgy of the Eucharist when the priest elevates the host and the body and blood of Christ. Something I've always wondered because I am a convert to the faith is what's the big deal with ad orientum? If the Eucharist is the central portion of the Mass and our worship and our devotion is appropriately directed towards worship of Jesus and his Eucharistic presence, why is it so important that we face towards the East, or why is it important that we do Mass ad orientum if the representation of Christ and his sacrifice is the most important and central part of the Mass? Thanks for taking time on this question. Talk to you later. Well, Greg, the OSHA RN, if that is your real name. And real job. Uh, and real job. Uh, and if you called because you were talking with me on Destiny 2 and I said, that's a great question, please call our podcast so we can make a segment out of it because content is king. I couldn't actually uh, perform a work of mercy then by explaining this to you. I'd rather use it for my uh, fun hobby. If all that's true, you have proposed a very interesting question. And uh, Greg, you're so close. So close. You're almost right. Kind of like a Protestant. You're almost right about what you're talking about. But let's 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 set you straight. Let's set you facing east. And you can find out why facing east is super duper important. Father Harrison, are you ready for our Ad Orientum episode? Ad Orientum Extravaganza. That should be the title. Okay. Ad Orientum <laughs> Extravaganza. <laughs> so let's let's begin, as Greg was talking about. So uh, when we talk about Ad Orientum, uh, facing east. That is when the priests and the people are facing the same direction. Now, first of all, Father Harrison, why does it matter which way we face when we're praying? Isn't God everywhere? Yes. Isn't he in our hearts? What's the big deal about picking a direction to pray in? Because we are embodied creatures, and so God works through his creation and everything he has given us. And so we need, even how we orient and use our bodies in the context of liturgy speaks to God working through us as creatures. And so, yeah, you know, posturing towards east or kneeling standing all are important things that communicate a deeper reality to us and the thing is like this is a fun question because it's a very modern question uh because people in ancient times uh when they worship like the direction you're facing was like an obvious question to ask like what direction do we face when we pray right. it just seemed like a normal thing to do uh, it's kind of emphasizing the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, mm -hmm. um, which is something that we appreciate as well as the fact that, you know, especially because of our baptism, the Holy Spirit is within us. So right. we're not denying that when we talk about facing an external direction. But like Father Harrison said, this means something. And so I'm going to give you a quick and dirty history of how facing East sort of happened. 
Um, as you may remember from your uh, RCIA class, that uh, the temple in Jerusalem was the place of sacrifice. It's where the presence of God in a particular way was, because in there was the Ark of the Covenant. And so while sacrifice could only happen at the temple, the Jewish people often would, if they weren't in Jerusalem, would often face Jerusalem when they prayed, because that just sort of makes sense. Okay, now what happens after Jesus Christ dies and rises again, and you've got Christians in Jerusalem, what direction are they going to pray? They decide, let's pray toward Mount Olives, because that's where Christ died, that's where near where he um, was buried and rose again, and that happened to be east of Jerusalem. So that's how they started praying. Now, what happens as Christianity grows, and it goes all over the place, uh, and so then Christians decide to start praying east, uh, one in remembrance of those early Christians, but also because of the symbolism there in nature. So the rising of the sun, which can symbolize really two things. Two, the rising of Christ, which we celebrate at the Holy Eucharist, uh, but also looking forward toward Christ coming again. So as sure as the sun will rise, Christ will come again. And Mass has this very eschatological, forward-looking uh, posture to it. So facing east was the normal direction that Christians would pray uh, when praying, especially the Eucharist. Guys, add one little quick thing to that too, actually. Please do, Which yeah. is really interesting. It's actually just a thought that I just think, I don't know how historically correct this would be, but, um, you know, you might think though, but then there are people in Asia who are Christian, you know, well, Jerusalem's to the West. Why aren't they facing it that way? Because the whole church is faced, the whole church faces the same direction as one body. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it didn't, and in the end, when you're facing East, eventually you're getting to Jerusalem. Right. So it's not like yeah. there's a line. Right. So <laughs> it's but that, that notion, like, this is a universal posture because the whole church, the whole world faces this one direction. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, you know, remembering that we are the body of Christ, this better symbolizes who we are. We're living out in our prayer, who we are all facing the same direction. Mm -hmm. And so once uh, Christians were allowed to build churches and stuff, they would build them facing east. And the liturgy from very early on, uh, the priest and the people would face east together. Now, you brought up a really good argument about why we should face each other, or not face each other, but everyone face um, the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. It's in, Well, it's in the center, so we're all facing the Eucharist. Well, first of all, if we're all facing the same direction anyway, that's what the Eucharist is anyway. Uh, but Father Harrison... What are we doing at Mass? You're good at explaining this. Like, Greg had a really good idea. He was not totally wrong. Mm -hmm. But his point was, like, we are primarily worshiping Christ in the Mass. And that's close. Mm -hmm. But can you give us a little more nuance here? Yeah. Well, my favorite phrase to use is that we are sharing in Christ's worship of the Father. Mm -hmm. It's not us. We, we worship, but in a almost kind of secondary sense. Because um, um, it's not really our work. It's Christ's work. And so it's something of the whole body, one action all uh, head and members. Um, so that's what we're doing. And so, yeah. Yeah, so if you think about it, so we use the term worship a lot. Um, for the sake of this, you can really replace the term worship with love. Uh, so what Christ does for us is that he brings us up into the love or the worship of the Trinity. Us by ourselves, we're incapable of this. Because not just because not even just because we're fallen and sinful, but because we're created, we can't enter into the Trinity 
by ourselves, by our own power, even if we were sinless. But what Christ does is he brings us into his worship, into his love of the Father in the Spirit. And so now our worship becomes, in a sense, valuable because Christ ties it to his worship. So we are in Trinitarian love through Christ. So the action of the Mass is we enter into Christ's worship of the Father. If you actually look at most of the texts for the Mass, uh, even when you hear Lord, it's actually referring to God the Father. That's what our prayer, that's who our prayers are addressed to, God the Father. Because the idea is that, you know, it is Christ's worship of the Father that we are now a part of. So properly speaking, uh, our direction is toward the Father. Now, because the Trinity is one, are we also worshiping Christ? Yes. Are we also worshiping the Holy Spirit? Yes. But this is kind of the mode in which we do it, if that makes sense. Is that fair to say, Father mm-hmm. Harrison? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So facing east, um, we, we talked about the sim- symbology of that. Uh, but the spiritual meaning is is more important than the physical meaning. Like when the we can actually face east, of course, that's preferred because... Um, the action kind of lines up with the spiritual meaning. That's great. But in some places, you only have a certain area where you can build a church. What if you can't build a church facing east? What if your compass is broken and you don't know what direction east is? Well, then churches would try to face some sort of cardinal direction because it seems more dignified to be pointing north than to be pointing northwest. Eh, you know, we're just trying our best to make things dignified. Um, but the point is, spiritually, we are all facing east. Spiritually, we're all facing God the Father in Christ. And this is how worship was done. Uh, And so that's why churches are built in the way that they were most often built. And there's even archaeological evidence that there are some churches in Rome where the altar, where the the priests would face the people uh, Mm -hmm. during worship. But that's because the front door of the church was facing east. So the priest was facing east, even though the church was built facing west yeah. does that make sense yeah saint peter's is actually kind of like that <laughs> yeah yeah so it's just like and and there's some evidence that that says that uh during certain parts of the mass the people turned their back on the priest right. so that they all could face the same direction uh particularly during um the uh the creed i'm getting a lot of this stuff from a book called turning toward the lord and anything I say that's incorrect is not due to the author, but due to me misremembering stuff. But I'm pretty sure all that's solid, okay? So what happens? What changes after Vatican II? Um, Father Harrison, does Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred uh, Liturgy, does it say anything about what direction we should face during prayer? Uh, it does talk about certain points uh, facing the people or engaging with the people or whatever like that. It does talk about that a bit, but it doesn't say that this has to be the whole orientation of the mass. Right. Okay. Uh, so why, why are we, why are we changing things around? What, what, what tells us that it doesn't, that can happen? It, it doesn't. Mm, okay. So then why do we do it? Father Harrison, the best theory I've heard actually mm-hmm. is that because St. Peter's is not built facing East. And so, mm-hmm. Vatican II is one of the first times the whole church in the world kind of sees liturgy celebrated in Rome and it sees the Pope facing the people and so people start to what do people do best we imitate we love mm-hmm. to, we love to imitate things and so in this case here um, the 
people see this and they say, oh, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And they start doing it. Yes. And and, and I think in, in, in this, and they see the document saying that there should be points of the mass where the pre, or sorry, let me rephrase it. It does, it talks about like in the documents about like the, the altar being separated so that the priest can make more easily walk around it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that there should be aspects where he's able to face them. Um, so then I think people then take these two things together and really. Yeah. And so there's something actually very Roman about that idea. We saw what was going on in Rome and we imitated it because in the history of liturgy in the church, that's often what people tried to do. They're like, how should we celebrate mass in Gaul? Well, how do they do it in Rome? So there's something kind of Catholic about that. Um, But a lot of people will quote um, quote the Roman Missal, uh, which is uh, the, um, not the Roman Missal, the germ. Yeah. The general instruction for the Roman Missal, which is referring back to uh, another document. And basically what they quote is this. It is better for the main altar to be constructed away from the wall so that one can easily walk around the altar and celebrate facing the people. Mm-hmm. So people read this and they read and depending on what translation they read, it sounds like it's saying that it is preferable that you celebrate facing the people. But that's not what it says. And that's not even what the general instruction of the Roman Missal says. Let's see. Let's look at the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Yes. Okay. It says, in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, let the altar be constructed separate from the wall so that one can easily walk around the altar and celebrate facing the people, which is desirable whenever possible. It sounds like it's saying that celebrating facing the people is desirable whenever possible. But if you look at the grammar of the Latin, it's saying the construction of the altar should be such that it's possible to celebrate facing the people. Okay. Right. So a few things about that. One, it's not saying you have to. Right. It's saying it's preferable. And as you can imagine, some questions were raised about this. Okay, why? What's the purpose? What's going on here? And so questions get sent to Rome and there are answers. And one of the uh, answers uh, was uh, from uh, Concilium, uh, explains this to a conference of bishops. And this is a letter from Rome. Above all, because for a living and participated liturgy, it is not indispensable that the altar should be versus populum, facing the people, in the mass. The entire liturgy of the word is celebrated at the chair, ambo or lectern, and therefore facing the assembly. As to the Eucharistic liturgy, loudspeaker systems make participation feasible enough. Secondly, hard thought should be given to the artistic and architectural question, its element in many places being protected by rigorous civil laws. So here we get the explanation. Why do you want an altar not on the wall? So that in the Novus Ordo, it's important to be able to hear what the priest is saying very practically speaking, so that the people know when their parts are. This is now an emphasis in the new liturgy. And if you don't have a sound system, it's helpful to hear when the priest is facing you. That's what this is for. And because the emphasis so much on priests and people together in this worship, when you're building a new church, it's preferable to have this option in case the sound system breaks down or if there's not a good sound system, it's helpful to hear. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm. That's the reason. Right. Also, in further clarifications, it says um, two things. One, that altar should never be built, never be built in a way that you can't face ad orientum. Hmm. And also, you have to keep in mind the architecture, the beauty. 
the documents don't have this idea in mind where you're ripping out or destroying altars. That's not the purpose right. at all whatsoever. But what you have is this really weird cultural moment after Vatican II for all sorts of reasons. Some Father Harrison mentioned, some we've talked about in other episodes, where this just became rampant. It became rampant that uh, celebrating facing the people was the ordinary thing to do. And it still is mostly today. So then the question becomes, why are we so militant about this? Uh, so I think we're so militant about this um, is because of the sins of our fathers. Uh-huh. I was trying to explain this to RCIA people because I was giving a church tour. And the only way I can explain the architecture of one of our particular churches mm-hmm. is to explain some of the old rites because the church is built with the old rite in mind, mm-hmm. right? And so I was talking about this, and they were asking the same sort of question. And you can find enough people who were still alive during that time, mm-hmm. and they have very negative remem- yep. uh, memories yep. of the church back then. Uh, not all. I met some people who are uh, who don't, but a lot do. Yep. Um, it's also important to remember that in a lot of places, the liturgy was not celebrated well. Ooh. Um, I've it heard, was... I, it, yeah. We, we hear about oh. Irish masses in 15 minutes or Irish priests doing mass in 15 minutes, and it's not a joke. Right. Uh, so, like, the holy sacrifice of the mass with all of that Latin and all that stuff done in 15 minutes. Uh, one of my uh, teachers at seminary would tell me about uh, a priest would tell me that as an altar boy, he would be in the sacristy getting ready. The priest would walk in, set down his lit cigar, go say mass. And by the time he came back, the cigar was still lit. He would put it in his mouth and go about his business. Yeah. Um, this wasn't happening everywhere, but it was happening a lot. Mm-hmm. It was also so the mass became this mechanical thing um, that people just go to. It became empty. Now the rite itself, the liturgy itself, wasn't that, but the way it was being celebrated was. Um, you've got uh, tons of stories of. Um, different kinds of difficulties with the catholic school system like mm-hmm. it's it's a tired trope but it's there for a reason yeah like the nuns really mean to me or whatever yeah so you have this generation of people who finally saw freedom from something that felt very mechanical very perfunctory without any kind of spirituality mm-hmm. and they just went haywire in the other direction right and i think we're still living out of that right and so is the resistance to ad orientum really just or yeah because as you know like people of our generation for example seem to be more open to the and and not only open strongly desirous of this right because um and also it's important that some people today might be against it because the world is so crazy yep and so much is changing all the time but you know when you go to mass it's gonna be mass so whenever people experience any kind of change in the mass it's really difficult uh, and that's understandable. Like your parish, your church, your mass um, is the one place where you can be safe from the world. Mm-hmm. And to do any kind of change, you have to do so very carefully. So that's that's part of why people may be resistant, just because it's it's a change and something that's foundational yeah. um, to them, right? But also the reason why a lot of young priests are for ad orientum is one because theologically, historically, it makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Also, any priest who's celebrated it in my experience, has a feeling of utter relief. Mm-hmm. Um, relief mm-hmm. in the sense that all of a sudden, it's not about you. Yeah. 
Um, and, and Pope Benedict has this quote that, you know, it's, it's good for the priest to face in the same direction as the people, because isn't he a Christian in need of God's mercy as well? Amen. You're all equal I haven't heard that before. God. I like that. Or maybe yeah. I have, I just forgot it because that's really good. Yeah. Uh, you've forgotten more about Ratzinger than most people learn in their lifetimes while they're here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've experienced yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and while my prayer facing the people is just as genuine, it's easier for me to enter into the prayer when it feels less like a performance. It's just the nature of where you are, who you're facing. It's this very human sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying the mass facing the people is any less holy or valid. Not at all. Not at all. But it's just more proper to be all facing the same direction yeah. during those parts. Yeah. Uh, there are some people who are arguing for uh, even the liturgy of the word facing the same direction, and uh, no, I'm not for it, that. That's not, and that doesn't. That's that. There's no tradition of this. Yeah. And it it doesn't make any sense because the whole point of the liturgy of the word is God addressing us through His written word, the scriptures. Yeah speaking to the church we sing the psalm in response etc like no no this that is something oriented towards us yeah and we respond by orienting our whole the whole church to him in 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 the eucharistic worship so and and i think that's the other thing is and that at the same time though the priest as head is leading the body Mm -hmm. right yeah you don't lead by facing Imagine yeah. walking down a dangerous path backwards as you're facing your group to make sure everyone's okay. <laughs> Doesn't work out so well, but you turn around once in a while, you say, the Lord be with you. Oh, good. You guys are okay. You know, and go back. <laughs> um, but this is the whole idea is we're leading each other. We're all going. And, and, and yes, absolutely. We are, we are so much in need of mercy. My gosh. Uh, we are sinners mm-hmm. too. And, and, and it anonymizes the priest because I think, I, I do think there is a point towards the greater clericalization of the priest after the council in many ways they existed beforehand it just came out in a very different way in this way so that again as we kind of talked about a few weeks ago mass is all about what i get out of it the taste what taste i get like my own personal tastes around the mass Mm -hmm. that's not helpful and my yeah my experience too it's like oh okay i can just pray this now i mean i try really hard to like again i think i mentioned this before on the podcast my eyes are on the book most of the time Mm-hmm. the very least because it's not i'm not there to perform i'm there to do my job which is to mediate christ's sacrifice for the people and and that that anonymity um element i think would make people more welcoming of whichever priest they can get in their parishes yeah. again you know which is not a bad thing um yeah and, and the example i've always often used too i'm like well then if this is the case why am i not at benediction why why am i saying all the prayers towards the eucharist well, is it not my back towards you or anything they'll say no, no mm-hmm. well yeah you're facing jesus i'm like yes exactly <laughs> yeah yes exactly exactly and so if we can ha- like this is the th- i think for me that has been my greatest argument in this whole thing it always is if we can do this for benediction we can do this for mass if we have no, we have no emotional bent against a priest facing the Eucharist at, at adoration. Yeah. At all. And yeah. And I think we've also seen the pitfalls of the priest facing the people um, where, and, and this is like, it's just a human thing where when you've got a, in our age, when you have a person on an elevated stage, if you will, facing the people, all of our brains from the culture that we live in says, performance, yeah. either a TV show or opera or 
uh, YouTube or whatever. It's just clicked into our brains because that's how our culture works. Also, another human level. Have you ever had that experience where someone waves at you, but they're not actually waving at you? Oh, my gosh. They're waving that. at people behind you, and it's <laughs> awkward. Like, it'd be weird to be addressing the Father when looking at the congregation. Yeah. It's like you're waving past them a little bit. It's just, because the big thing is the incarnation. That uh, is that we are embodied creatures, that these things matter. Mm -hmm. Whether we realize it or not, it's informing us, it's teaching us, it's molding us. Um, and now that's not to say the first time you go to an Ad Orientum Mass, it'll be the most majestic thing ever, it'll change your mind. It might just be really awkward and you might be confused or left out because it's different. Right. And that is okay. It's not magic. Facing um, Ad Orientum isn't going to magically change everything. Right. But I do think. If you go to Ad Orientum Mass, think about the way you feel yeah. and examine why you feel that way. Yes. And you can draw a lot of good prayer out of that. And I think through that, more and more people will see that like this just makes more sense. Yeah. And I think and at the end, I think I really and truly believe if we could allow this again, organically, not in an opposed way. Right. But if like just give priests the freedom to do it if they so desire mm -hmm. and there's and the support to do it. The schisms that are arrived, I'm, I'm almost certain that if this one thing could be allowed, a lot of the problems that we're experiencing in the church would be fixed. Not all, but it would be a it would a lot of the liturgy wars, a lot of the liturgy better. wars. But they those liturgy wars come into other things, right? And so they yeah. they can it will open people like those people who like that stuff. It'll open their heart to listen to the 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 bogus ordo priest or whatever you know it's like <laughs> um but you know, i think i really believe like and it's and if we can educate and it's not an ideological thing we're just trying to be no. faithful to what the church has always done mm -hmm. like that's, that's yeah. it that's all yeah and i guess why a lot of pre why i'm so passionate about it is a few reasons one uh i get to celebrate at orientum uh every once in a while so our first friday devotions end with a candlelit mass uh and it's at Orientum. Mm -hmm. And after celebrating it that way, it's so hard to turn back. Right. Because just the prayer, everything clicks more. It feels right. Um, okay. So part of it's uh, that. Uh, part of it is also, it's like, it's such an, like I said, this isn't going to fix everything, but it's such an easy fix. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of instructing people. And it's a way of making the liturgy something truly different than anything else you do in exactly. life. Exactly. Worship is should look different than the ordinary stuff that you do. When you walk into the church, what you're doing, mass should look different than what other religions are doing, what mm -hmm. other things are happening, because it is. It's a foretaste of heaven that we are all looking towards. And um and, you know, to, to Greg's uh, concerns, we are still all facing the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and also to his point, they're like not seeing what a big deal it is. I can totally get that as well. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you show up to Mass, you understand what the Mass is, you love Jesus, you love the liturgy, and you're just like, I'm happy to be here. Mm -hmm. Why are people making a big fuss about Ad Orientum? I think that's an okay place to be. There's nothing wrong with mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I think that actually shows a kind of fidelity that's yeah. good and healthy in yep. a person. Yeah. Uh, which is why I wanted, because when Greg was talking to me over Xbox Live Chat, I'm like, call in with your message, because actually it's 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 a good jumping off point for this. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to be like, I don't want to be a save the liturgy, save the world guy, because right. I think that 
that's all in a lot of ways that's misinterpreted yeah i don't want to yeah and i yeah, yeah I, that and when that's what i meant earlier too like it is not like it is not a fix-all but it's just if it's done rightly and organically it can become a real healing balm to the church i think so as well yeah uh, well, I could talk more about uh, I could too, but I'm kind this. of fading. I need a nap. I'm fading. I need to get my hairs cut. Um, but that gives you a gist. Uh, a final note, I think Father Harrison mentioned it. Um, the actual Roman missile that the priests pray presumes that you're facing the uh, facing uh, Ad Orientum. Yes. Because there are specific instructions that say the priest, turning the priest to face, facing the people. Turning to, fa- turning to face the people. Exactly. Which would be dumb if he wasn't already facing, if he was already facing the people. So... To celebrate the Novus Borgo Vatican II Mass, the way it should be celebrated, the way the spirit of the council intentioned, is to face ad orientum. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me with my back facing the people at Mass. You can find me on Twitter at Fr Harrison. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. If you have a theological emergency, call 412-912-7995. That's 412-912-7995. Please note, if you have an actual sacramental emergency, do not call this number. If you have a sacramental emergency, call your parish. We're not going to come in and anoint you from Canada. That's ridiculous. Unless you're one of Father Harrison's actual parishioners, in which case he will anoint you. Still don't call that number. Call your parish. Amen. Peace. God bless.